this is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle or anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. It's the basis for the sermon that will be preached at the First Free Methodist Church on October 16, 2022. This is the first in a new series called The Abundance Dilemma as we explore the themes of generosity, gratitude, and stewardship. As we turn our attention to this text, it's a well-known passage of Scripture uh, that's captured not only here in the Gospel of Matthew, but also in Mark and Luke. Those three Gospels are commonly called the synoptic Gospels. They see the life of Jesus together. That's what the word synoptic means, to see together. Uh, They see Jesus' life roughly through the same sort of lens. And each one of the different stories in the Gospels has a nuance that's lifted up in it. In the case of Matthew's version of this story, the nuance that is really highlighted is that of followership, or what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As the text opens up, it simply says that someone came to him. So oftentimes when you read this text in your Bible, the heading above it will say the rich young ruler, or try to describe this person. Every gospel describes this person a little differently. So at least at the outset of this particular passage, it's just someone, doesn't say much about who it is, but someone comes to Jesus and asks, teacher, what good thing must I do so that I may obtain eternal life? And so the question is twofold. What singular thing needs to be done? And second, how do I obtain eternal life? There is some sense here that he's asking about the requirements of being a follower of Jesus. What do I have to do? do in order to be aligned with you. And language here is key, and and the question exposes so much. The first thing that we learn in the question that the person asks is that he thinks there is something to be done. Second, he thinks that there's only one thing to do. And third, he believes that this is a, a transaction between doing some one thing and then securing the result. Jesus' response to him is important because it keys off of what he asked. So Jesus isn't really even diving into the intentionality of his question, but just simply dealing with the question that's been asked on its surface. So Jesus responds by asking a question in turn. Why are you asking me about what is good? In many ways, when the the person comes to Jesus, it's almost implied that he's expecting Jesus to answer this question in a way that's different than it's always been answered. So he thinks there's some new answer that Jesus is going to give him. And so Jesus is not denying being good, like, why are you asking me what is good? Because I'm not. Jesus is not saying that. But as much as Jesus is pushing back against this kind of magical or transactional thinking on the part of the person. Why are you asking me about what's good? It's almost rhetorical. There's only one who is good, but if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments, Jesus tells him. There's so much here in Jesus's response, but everything Jesus says is rooted in the question that the man asked him. So 
after Jesus responds to the part of the question of, you know, why do you call me good? Then he goes on to say, well, there's only one who is good and that God alone functions as the judge. So the the notion of who gets eternal life and who doesn't get eternal life, Jesus is saying is that in some ways is not completely my department. And he says that there is only one who is good. And so by using the word one here, Jesus is kind of quietly pointing to the primary creed of Judaism uh, that you can find uh, in Scripture, in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. And so Jesus is kind of pointing at the fact that only God is the judge. God is the one who is good to make the judgment in a sense that this person is asking Jesus to make. And then Jesus continues on uh, about this notion of wanting to enter eternal life. He tells them, then you should keep the commandments. So Jesus now makes it clear that the singular here is incorrect. Remember what the man asked, teacher, what good thing, singular. And what Jesus's response is, is that he should keep the commandments, plural. So this is no simple transaction. This isn't a matter of doing one thing and then eternal life comes. So eternal life is not a matter of some kind of work or obedience of any one person at one time and in one place. And and the key passageway here is very important. With all of this truth that is woven in here in Jesus's response, let's not forget what's really happening here, is that sometimes what we ask reveals more than the question. That's our key passageway. What we ask sometimes reveals more than just the question. You know, sometimes the questions we hold in our own life, the questions we ask God, the questions we ask others, are projections of our deeper and unspoken needs. This man, in his question, reveals many things about how he sees Jesus, how he sees the world, and how he sees his relationship to God. The question that is asked is actually more revealing of the one asking it than whatever the response to the question might be. So something that we might wonder about at this moment is, what is the question that you are asking Jesus today? What is the question each of us are asking Jesus today? And how might God's answer to that question or God's response be in the question that we're asking itself? In some ways, by asking the questions we do, are we not already inviting the answer? Do we not already know the answer? And so there's something else happening in our asking, and it's more than just gaining information. It's actually revealing about who and where we really are in our lives. After Jesus tells this person to keep the commandments, his response in verse 18 is then to ask, well, which ones, which of the commandments am I to keep? So there's a a shift from the singular, what good thing shall I do, to now, well, which ones, which of the commandments? For the, the movement is from singular to plural. So he's continuing to try to probe this transaction that somehow he's framed in his mind that I need to do something in order to attain eternal life. In this second question, the man reveals further the kind of skewed understanding he has of the entire topic. So this becomes somewhat 
of an inquiry about what kind of checklist is needed. So which ones, I hope you hear what's implied there, that there's some that need to be kept and there's others that do not need to be kept. Jesus then tells them, well, you need to keep all the commandments. And what's interesting in Jesus's response here is he quotes the the the, the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, and at least a portion of them, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear, bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. So love your neighbor as yourself isn't in the Ten Commandments, it's actually from Leviticus. But I want you to take note of which one of the Ten Commandments Jesus leaves out in Matthew's version of the story. There's one in particular that's missing here, and its absence is conspicuous. And it's the commandment about coveting. You see, what I think is beautiful about this story is that Jesus already knows more than what we can see here. That he knows that the person who's come to him is hung up on one of these commandments in particular, and it's coveting. And we're going to circle back to that in a minute. But note here also that Jesus adds to the the portion of the Ten Commandments this passage from Leviticus chapter 19. You shall love the na- your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus has often quoted earlier in other parts of the Gospels where he makes reference to the fact that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. In ca- this case, in Matthew, it comes later in chapter 22. The greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22 is to love God and to love neighbor. And so Jesus continues to respond to this man coming to him in the vein of the question, the more he keeps asking about how the transaction works, Jesus continues to highlight how impossible the transaction is. So that if you try to think about this as some sort of transaction with God, well, that's not how this whole thing operates. So in this sense, the man's focus as he's questioning Jesus is on himself. Notice even from the beginning, teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life. He's completely focused on his own salvation and his own justification to the ignorance of everything else around him. And this opens up a key passageway for us here that it's important that we pay attention to, that our relationship with God is not a transaction framed by fairness and trade You see, the more the man keeps speaking, we gain a greater lens into his way of thinking. If I just did X, Y, and Z, God would be pleased with me. I mean, too many of us live in that same kind of space. We live in that same space in our human relationships, maybe with our our spouse, our partner, our children, maybe with our boss, maybe with another individual in our life. If we say to ourselves, if I just did this, then they would be happy with me. And we ascribe to this kind of transactional thinking all the time. Or more insidious is magical thinking. And magical thinking is where we have intent that never seems to translate itself into action. That we concoct in our mind a, a version of a story or a fantasy of what it would look like for people to be pleased with us. And then when they're not, we don't understand why what's provided for in Jewish law is an ironclad case against both of these lenses, whether it's transactional thinking or magical thinking. Neither of them work. Jesus prompts us to look at those things that prevent 
the natural movement of God's grace. Those are the only things that we can actually control. Not God's response to it. God's going to respond as God is going to respond. The only thing we can control is the things in our life that prevent the natural movement of God's grace. This is not a transaction to be brokered. This is not just a a magical relationship with God that is somehow going to happen based on our intent alone. There's something else happening here, and we begin to learn what it is in the third question that this man asks. In verse 20, the third question appears. The young man, notice the descriptor is now here. It's a young man said to him, all these I have kept, what am I still lacking? So as Jesus recounts to him all the commandments and all the things that he's to obey, his claim is that he has kept all of them. What else do I lack? Now the issue becomes clear. He believes he has performed all according to the law. He is self-justified. I'd say that's pretty awesome. (laughs) It is the question here that finally gets to the heart of the matter. So it's no longer what we need to do, but now he's asking, what am I lacking? Jesus finally brings the now young man, as he's described, to a place of reckoning. Now, young here uh, means that uh, the wealth that he has, that we'll learn in a moment, he has a substantial amount of wealth, is likely that of an inheritance or some other entitlement. It would be unlikely for him to be as young as when he's described as a young man to be a kind of a self-made man of wealth. He's likely inherited it. And so there's a, a degree of entitlement floating around in here that is kind of unspoken in the text. So he brings this youthful eagerness to the question. And in that, he fails to have some degree of self-awareness. He says, what am I lacking? That is the opposite of another word in Greek, which means completeness. It's the same word for perfection. So there is a sense, in a very real sense, what he's saying is not just what am I lacking. He's saying, how am I not perfect? And I think it's rich for us to stop and dwell in that meaning just for a moment. What am I lacking is how am I not perfect? And now Jesus's response is dialed in. He tells him to go sell everything he has and give it away to the poor. Remember with the Ten Commandments, the the commandments Jesus quoted, he left one out about you shall not covet. He tells him to sell everything he has and give it away to the poor. And then here's something powerful in the story. He says, then follow me. Jesus only uses that verb, follow, followed by me, is when he's making reference to the call of his disciples. So what he's telling the man is that, well, it sounds pretty awesome that you've kept all the commandments. If you go sell everything you have and give it away to the poor, then you can be, in a, in a way, my 13th disciple. Jesus is offering him the status of being one of his disciples. So now it becomes clear that in Matthew's gospel, this is a lesson for Matthew's audience and for us about discipleship and namely the cost of it. See, the transaction that he's been looking for all along is now crystal clear. Sell everything. Follow me. There's no promise of eternal life, which is what he originally asked for. There's only the promise of following Jesus. 
And of course, as we know how the story plays out in verse 22, but when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Hard for him to hear the message, grounded in his own lack of self-awareness. And this opens up a key passageway for us about discipleship. Discipleship is a submission to Jesus's power to perfect or complete us. Discipleship is a submission to Jesus's power to perfect or complete us. See, the young man believed he had done all that was needed for salvation, and herein lies the failure. He's trying to do discipleship without actually being a disciple, a follower. So when he's offered discipleship, in other words, when he's offered the opportunity to become a follower, he refuses. Jesus may not be asking all of his disciples to sell everything. In other words, what Jesus asks is not normative for every disciple. But, but, nothing can stand between us and Jesus. So if it's wealth, it needs to be removed. If it's arrogance, it needs to be dispensed with. If it's even uh, a a lack of self-awareness, lack of even our own self-worth or self-love, it has to be dispensed with because it has come between us and the following of Jesus. Discipleship is not about doing anything. It is focused on being with Jesus above all other things. And so if that's the value, then that will trigger a set of actions on our part so that nothing comes between us and Jesus. And this is the daily choice a disciple makes. What stands between me and full, perfect communion with Jesus? That's the question. And if this man had started with that question, this entire conversation would have looked very, very different. And it's the question we need to wrestle with. What stands between each one of us and full and perfect commitment to Jesus. If you have comments or reflections, I'd love to hear from you. Please visit my website, revcraig.com. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a button called News. Click on it, and there'll be a menu that drops down. Click on Podcasts, and then click on this particular episode, and you'll see at the bottom of that page where you'll be able to leave a comment. I look forward to hearing from you there. I also invite you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.